take your Bible and open it to that passage that Greg read from earlier this morning, Luke chapter 2. That's our theme this morning. Uh, I might be attempting a lot here. I think we can do it. My attempt is to go from two, Luke 2, verse 1, all the way down through verse 20. That will be our, our text this morning. You know, nearly 2,000 years ago, the creator of the universe, eternal God, entered into our planet as a baby. I mean, it really is an incredible, incredible thought that the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, took on flesh. I mean, so significant is his birth that it became a focal point in history. I mean, everything prior to his birth is B.C., before Christ, and all history since is A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord. And what I want to do here as we look at that focal point of history is look at Luke's accounts. And just refresh our hearts this morning once again with this incredible passage of our Lord's birth. And as we walk through this passage, I, I see three participants who are announcing, or we might even say responding, and they're responding and announcing by giving glory to the one whom Christmas is all about. And my prayer for us as a church family this morning is that we too will respond this morning to the babe who was born nearly 2,000 years ago. The first participant is just Luke's announcement of Jesus Christ. Luke's announcement of Jesus Christ. And it's right there in chapter 2 in 1 through 7. Greg read that, but pick it up in... Let me just read it again. I, I didn't know he was reading that, but let me read it so that I don't miss with you um, part of the historical narrative. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time for her to give, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn." Amazing there that though Augustus Caesar thought he was ruling that region, God was, behind all of that, ruling the universe. Caesar, of course, called for a decree for tax purposes, and that decree obviously moved Mary and Joseph 80 miles, roughly, from Nazareth to the city, to the town of Bethlehem. But we know that as they moved for those tax purposes, it was ultimately God moving the world 
to give the greatest gift that has ever been given. I mean, you see his sovereignty even in this opening section of Scripture. In fact, we know, it's not stated here, but the prophet Micah had foretold of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and foretold of his birth of the Messiah was to take place in Bethlehem. You remember that passage in the Old Testament in Micah 5.2 where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is a ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the days of, or from ancient days. I mean, little did Quirinaeus know, and little did Caesar know, that they were carrying out the sovereign plan of God as they put this decree in action. I think you've heard that phrase before, that history is truly his, what? Story, and it is. History is playing itself out. But God, if you will, is orchestrating all these events. But here is his birth. I mean, when you look at his birth, there's just really little fanfare when our Lord arrived on the scene. In fact, you'd probably agree that, that God identified with us really in one of the most humblest ways possible. It was, you understand this, a very ordinary birth. Uh, look at verse 7 for a moment. It just simply says, and maybe it's because I'm thinking something other than what you find recorded in Scripture. It says, verse 6, while they were there, the time for her to give, came for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. I mean, that's it. She gave birth. I mean, it is a classic understatement. And after she gave birth, Mary wrapped the baby in these cloths and laid him in, as, as we would understand it in verse 7, laid him in a manger. Now, now, we know from the wording here that the word manger, as you're well aware of, was an animal feeding trough. And, and you think about just the commonality of that birth. There was no crib. There was no bassinet. There was no pottery barn. There was no other family that was there. She gave birth to the Messiah, and she put him in, or Joseph put him in, an animal feeding trough. I think because there's mention here in the text of a manger that many assume that Jesus Christ was born in a stable. You've probably heard that. You can maybe even in your mind right now put yourself around those pictures growing up. But it's actually nowhere stated in the text that animals were at the scene. You say, oh, pastor, they were. Well, no, they are in the picture, okay? That you see, but there's nowhere stated in the text. They could have been there. You know from the text, look down at verse 7 there, that they laid him in a manger, that animal feeding trough, because at the end of verse 7, there was no room for them at the end. Okay? Now, there is no hint in the text that there was an insensitive, rude innkeeper. Now, I have some of those pictures in my mind of these videos called. Story keeper. Do you ever see those? 
where they come to the inn and the little window box opens up and it's the innkeeper and the innkeeper says, there's no room and Joseph replies, but it's my, it's my wife and she's pregnant and then he yells back at him, there's no room, you know, and the box is shut. Well, we just, we don't have that in the text. All we know is that, that when he came, there was no room. In fact, tradition holds that it very well may have been a cave that was used, here's what we would think, that often was a livestock shelter, okay? But we don't know the events beyond that. But we do know that his manger was his first crib. Now, the gift wrap of this gift was extraordinary. She took these swaddling cloths, it says. What, what those were were just long strips of cloth and what she would do is wrap the arms of the child. This is what they did. They wrapped the legs of the little body tightly. They did this for a number of reasons. They did it for warmth. They did it for, in some places, for security. They wanted to keep the baby's limbs straight so that they would grow properly. But in all that you see here in the text, I think the point is this, that she treated the baby like any other baby. I mean, in one sense, at least looking at his birth, it is a baby, fair? It is just a normal little baby. In other words, it physically looked, did Christ, like any other child, physically was treated like any other child, that at this birth there's no royal robes, there's no fancy clothing, our Lord didn't come out with a little halo over his head, he came out like everybody else comes out. And the utter contrast between the birth simplicity and the child's greatness could not be greater. I mean, I don't think anybody, I mean, maybe Mary and Joseph had a little bit of thought. What, what, they knew that the angel had spoken to them separately, but nobody realized that the eternal, holy creator God of the universe had just entered the world in human form. I mean, it's unthinkable, the entrance into the world for God's son. Sweat, pain, coldness, and possibly manure, and straw, and stench, okay? I mean, one put it this way. He humbled himself all the way down. All the way down. Not just to a stinking stable, but to become a substitute for sinners and bear the stench of our guilt in his own body. He came down to the poor and the lowly and the humble and the base and the wicked. Jesus Christ. I think you remember how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in verse 9 when he said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was, what? Rich, yet for your sake he became, what? Poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. And so think about that night. As Caesar sleeps in his secure palace, unbeknown to him, the ultimate 
king had just arrived uh, on the scene whose coming forth, Micah said, is from of old or from ancient. And though his birth was ordinary as any, this child was the center of angelic announcement. So I take you from first Luke's announcement to secondly, the angelic announcement to the shepherds. Because once he was born, the sky exploded with glory. Look at the text in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here is the angelic announcement to the shepherds. I mean, if you just go back for a moment in the account here, the angel who appeared in the temple to Zacharias, then he appeared to Mary in her room, then he appeared to Joseph in his dream, now would appear to the shepherds. I wrote here in my notes, to the field workers, okay? to announce the greatest news ever. In fact, this angelic announcement was proclaimed to a ragtag group of shepherds. I mean, just stop there for a moment and pause. The announcement didn't come to the priest. The announcement didn't come to the scribes. The announcement doesn't come to the Pharisees. The announcement doesn't come to the political figures. It comes to shepherds, and this too is another portrait in this account of the grace of God. Now, as the angelic announcement came, can you imagine the light show on the hills of Bethlehem? Look at the text again there when it says um, that the angel appeared to them, and then it uses this phrase, the glory, verse 9, verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Wow. I mean, right here in that city, on that mountainside, it became an amphitheater for the greatest light show in all of human history. Somebody recently said to me, who was at Disneyland, they said, man, that light show on the water is incredible. No, no, no. It's an understatement. Think if you were one of those shepherds and you saw not something manipulated by the sound system, not something manipulated by wiring and speakers and subwoofers and fountains and colors. Think if you were one of those shepherds and you were at that scene and you saw this light show, the greatest light show ever in all of human history. I mean, frankly, the sky split open. And it just says there that the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
Now you might ask, what is the glory of the Lord? (laughs) What does it mean that the glory of the Lord shone around them? I wish we had more time for this because I wrote part of my dissertation on this subject. I wrote on the attributes of God. And I wrote, and one of those attributes was his glory. In fact, if I asked you, what is the glory of the Lord? It's not always easy to define. When you think that God is to be glorified, or when you say God is a God of glory, what are you saying? I mean, it'd be much easier for you to understand if I said God is love, you would get that. If I said God is a merciful God, you would understand his mercy. If I told you God is a God of forgiveness, you would understand that he forgives us of our sin. If I said that God is a God of wrath, you would understand that bound up in his character is an all-consuming desire of holiness. If I said that God is light as we were in 1 John, you would understand that he is holy and he is pure. But when you say that God is glorious, what are you talking about? And when it says here in verse 9 that the glory of the Lord shone all around them, what is that? Well, when you look in the scripture, the Hebrew term for glory, it's interesting. It's a Hebrew term, it's, it's kavod. And what the word glory really means is just heavy. That's what the word means. It speaks of something that's heavy, and it speaks of weight. In fact, actually, it was literally used for a man, the judge, who was heavy. He was said to be kavod. But obviously, when we're talking about God's glory, you're not talking about something physical. You're talking about his character. You're talking about his person. In fact, here's how I look at it. When you add all of his attributes together, they all add up to be, what? Glorious. I think I told you that time when I was in my ordination, didn't I? When I had to stand before MacArthur. Did I tell you this? I mean, he's just drilling me with all those questions. And, you know, it's so funny when you're there with him and, you're, and there's other guys asking you questions and the other guys are trying to make you look good in front of the elders and he's just trying to find a chink in your armor. And so he's just drilling me. Just, I'd say a normal guy in an hour got off about 80 questions. I think he got off 240 in an hour on me. I mean, he was just coming after me. Just, he's just trying to pierce me. He's trying to find... Not well, yeah, he's just trying to find a weakness in me. And we finally got to the one where which attribute is the best of all, and I really didn't know that one. And they told me never to have him do it because he'll ask you stuff that's off the manual. And sure enough, he said, <laughs> I still remember his opening line. I can remember him sitting at the table. He said, Scott, I, I know you already know the, the book. Let me find out what you don't know. Bam, 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 bam. So he got to this one on the attributes of God. Which attribute is preeminent? And I think I might have mentioned that I didn't know which attribute was preeminent. I didn't know which attribute stood above all the attributes. So, but you never want to look like you don't know. So I started, you know, you just pause, get the reflective look like you're smart, you know. And, uh, and I started guessing, ah, that's easy, John. The, um, the love of God is preeminent because he died. On, no, that's not it. And then he'd stop you. He wouldn't let you extrapolate. No, that's not it. Oh, well, okay, John. Then, oh, yeah, you know what? I should have known this right away. It's the holiness of God. Isaiah 6, holy, holy. Nope, that's not it. I mean, he just stopped me about 10 times. I say, uncle, I give up, you know. And the answer was the most preeminent attribute is the glory of God. Because what he went on to to help me with is that the glory of God is the sum, and I can't 
and I don't like to say some, because you can't contain God. He's infinite. But if you put all of God's attributes together, if you exploded all of them onto the scene, you would simply say that He is a glorious God. That as you look and add up, but you can't add up, He's infinite. But if you added up all of His attributes, all of His character, they're standing at the top is His glory because His glory is displaying all that He is. And so when you find this phrase, the glory of the Lord shown all around them, what is it? The glory of God in the Old Testament, the glory of God in the New Testament is the physical manifestation of the presence of God amongst His people. So when this glory appeared on the mountainside and when it says that the glory of the Lord shone all around them, it would often be displayed in a brilliant light. But the light, of course, manifested the presence of God. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 16, after they had complained and grumbled and they were complaining against the leaders and maybe sometimes we find ourselves complaining wouldn't this be awesome if it showed up in your living room? As they're complaining about a nation, it says in Exodus 16, 7, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. So right there he said, you're going to see, you've been grumbling, you're going to see the glory of the Lord. You say, well, what were they seeing? Well, it goes on in Acts 16, excuse me, in Exodus 16, that as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, it says there that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the what? The cloud. I said, what is that? It, it appeared. There was a glory cloud. You say, well, what is the glory cloud? It's the presence of God with his people that he was physically, if you will, manifesting himself in a brilliant, brilliant light that he was with his people. In fact, do you remember in the book of Exodus towards the end in chapter 40, after they had constructed the tabernacle, that it said there that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then it goes on to say that there was such a cloud that they couldn't stand and minister in that tabernacle anymore. Well, what was it? It was a brilliant light. Well, what is it? It's the presence of God. And so here, as those angels came to make the announcement, they made the announcement to the shepherds. And as he appeared to them in verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And as it shone around them, and it was a brilliant light, terror gripped their soul. The text says that they were filled with fear, but fear gave way to one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible. Look at it again in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What a statement. The angel said there, as you see it there, that this is good news of great joy. 
Now, this good news is for everyone. It actually says there in verse 10 that it shall be for all the people. We don't have time here to go into the significance of that, but I believe when he says it's good news for all the people, he's referring primarily there to the Jewish people. He came to be their Savior. But I don't think you can contain it to that because if you glance down in your text, look at Luke chapter 2, and look at verse 30. We'll look at this just briefly tonight, where, where it says there that Simeon, is it Simeon there? Or actually Zacharias, when it says in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon. My eyes have seen your salvation, and it says, And you have prepared in your presence of all the peoples, verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And so though it might have went to the nation of Israel first, it went to all the Gentiles as a light to all the nations. But the angel basically said this, fear not, and you would imagine why they would be afraid. They were standing, if you will, in the very presence of God. His very glory was being manifested on that hillside. And they were absolutely filled with fear. But he said, fear not. He says, here's the good news. He said, born for you is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Think about it just for a moment, okay? Who was born that day was a Savior who was Christ the Lord. Just personalize this in your own heart. Born that day for you, it even uses that language in the text, is a Savior. It is the greatest news the world has ever heard. When you think here in the next couple days about the meaning of Christmas, here it is. God sent a Savior. He didn't send a judge. He sent a Savior to meet our deepest need. A Savior to deliver you from judgment. A Savior to deliver you and I from His wrath. A Savior sent for us because we could not do it in our own strength. In fact, look back in Luke chapter 1 just for a second. I'm thinking of that title, A Savior. Do you remember there at the, when Mary's song of praise, the Magnificent, it says there in verse 46, and Mary said, My soul, 146, magnifies the Lord and then this phrase, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my, what? Savior. So I find it interesting that in 147, Savior is a title for God. But here, in Luke's account, just the next chapter, it is a title for Christ at his birth. So who was born that day was a Savior, and that testimony is clear in the scriptures. Certainly you remember Matthew 1, 21, that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will, what? Save his people from their sins. In fact, look back at chapter, chapter 1, it is, or actually chapter 2, go forward. Look at verse 30. Look what, look what Simeon said. When he said in 2.29, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And in Luke 2.30, For my eyes have seen your, what? Salvation. 
John the Apostle, writing in the first epistle of John, said, we have seen and testify. He said that the Father has sent His Son for this purpose, to be the Savior of the world. He's the Savior. I, I like how John Newton said it many years ago. You remember he was radically saved and had written a number of hymns and books, but Newton said this. He said, when I was young, I was sure of many things. But now, he said later in his life, there are only two things of which I am sure. And one is that I am a miserable sinner and the other that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. How true, isn't it? I am a miserable sinner and he is an all-sufficient Savior. So here in this angelic announcement to the shepherds, here the angel clarifies that he's Savior. But look again back in Luke chapter 2. Look what else the angel says there. Look what else he gives by way of, of title. It says there that in the city of David, verse 11, there is a Savior. And then this phrase, who is Christ? Another title. He's Messiah. He's anointed king. He's the predicted one from the Old Testament who would fulfill all those prophecies. So he's Savior. He's Christ. But then, look again, he's Lord. It is a title of deity. The sovereign one who came in really an ordinary birth, who was born in the simplest terms, who was born around no fanfare, at least at that, might, that moment, is not only the Savior, is not only Christ, but He is Lord. He is the Sovereign One. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. You know that little phrase there in, at the end of 11 that He's Lord? In the Old Testament, you will find that term Lord. It's just simply, in the, at least in the Greek language, kurios, okay? Maybe you've heard that before. That's the Greek term for Lord, kurios. In the Old Testament, that term is used 6,156 times. And when it's used, it represents Yahweh. It represents the person of God. It is a title for God. He is God. He is Yahweh. It's a proper name for God affirming his legitimate, sovereign power and authority. That's the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament writers use kurios all the time. It is the name for God. But it says here that Jesus is Lord. Then that means this, that you are confessing him as God. And with that, all that that implies. Think about Isaiah when it says, For a child is born to us, a son is given and the government will rest upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. So what great news. Born for you is a Savior to take away all your guilt. Born for you is Christ who would fulfill all of our hope, hopes. Born for you that day is the Lord who one day will defeat all our enemies. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, at this moment in the text is the greatest moment in human 
history of the world. That that day, that city, in that cave presumably, a baby was laid in the manger and that baby was God himself. I mean, you might ask the question, who is this child whose birth established the world's calendars? Who is this child whose life has impacted more souls than all the other influential people in history combined? I got in the mail this week. Maybe you have seen it. It was Time Magazine. Say, Scott, you get time? Yeah, I had frequent flyer points that were running out. So you got so many left, you might as well. Okay, so Time Magazine's coming to the house. Did you see it? There on the cover, the Time Man of the Year. And who was it? It's Barack Obama. And I'm not trying to make any kind of statements at all, okay? But all I know is I think on the cover of Time Magazine, every single year should be some semblance of the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the one. Listen, these time men come and go. Just just like Adolf Hitler was the man of the year in 1938. They're going to come and go. But the one who was born here established the world's calendars, impacted more souls than all the other influential people in history combined. Who is this child who determines, think about it, the eternal destiny of every human being who has ever been born or will be born. The beautiful Christmas carol ask. Remember that little line? What child is this who was laid to rest on Mary's lap is what? Sleeping. Well, the angel tells us, think about it, in explicit terms who it is. It is our Savior. It is Christ. It is the Lord. Listen, With those titles, no wonder the text says what it says. Look at verse 13. No wonder, suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angels multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Oh, wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day? Wouldn't you have loved to be a shepherd on that hillside? All I know is in that moment, all heaven broke loose in praise. That praise could not be contained on that hillside. In fact, it says there that the announcing angel is joined by a multitude of angels. You say, well, Scott, how many? How many angels? Well, you, you see it there. It just says a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. You say, how many? Well, we don't know. We don't know how many. But there's another description in the book of Revelation where it says that these angels were praising God and it uses this phrase, 10,000 times what? 10,000. You say, well, how much is that? Well, at least in the word, 10,000 is the Greek word murion. And it is the highest number for which there is a word in the Greek language. 
And it could be that here, John capturing that spirit in Revelation is writing Murian times Murian, 10,000 times 10,000 in sort of a hyperbole. We just don't know. But all I know is when the angel makes this announcement, in comes this multitude of heavenly hosts. And I think it's fascinating that the angels praise God at creation. Job 38, 7. And now they are praising God at the beginning of the new creation. And the angels kept saying, imagine that. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom He is well pleased. That lowly manger, that humble beginning turned into an antiphony of praise. Glory to God, the angels cried out, in the highest. I just take that glory to God in the highest heaven is the thought. And then you'll notice that phrase. Look at it with me. Look at it down. It's troubled people or not troubled people. Maybe there's been some questions. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And now the ESV says, among those whom he is well pleased. Now, it's different in the KJV if you're holding that. The KJV says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And remember how it used to say it? We say it in the song. Good will toward what? Men. But, but you'll note, depending on what you're holding today, that nearly all of the modern translations agree that that last phrase in verse 14 is not the most accurate way to say it. Again, the KGV says, it says, King James just says, goodwill towards men. You'll, I'll just say it to you. In the NIV, it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Interesting. The NASB, if you're holding that, says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Look now at the ESV, very similar. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But the key there is it's peace. It's, it's peace among those whom he is pleased. You say, well, who are those? Who is that? Is it glory to God in the highest in peace to everyone? Well, no, not really. It's, it's peace, verse 14, among those whom he is pleased. Well, who is he pleased with? Let me just show you. Look over in Luke chapter 10, just for a moment. Luke chapter 10, just go over to the right there. I found this fascinating because you're thinking that's different than how you grew up, at least how you grew up singing. But in Luke chapter 10, remember when he was getting the, the disciples, or actually not even the disciples, I, I suppose I could call it the disciples. He's getting ready to send the 70 out in twos. And he says, you know this way, in verse 10:4, carry no money bag, no, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whenever, whatever house you enter, first say, watch this, peace be to the house. Verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will remain and it will return on you. In other words, when you enter a house, first say, peace be unto this house. In other words, that's the offer of peace to all. 
And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. But if not, it will return to you. In other words, God's presence in Christ is offered to the whole world. But only the sons of peace receive it. And you might ask the question, um, how do I know if I'm part of the angel's promise that says peace among those with whom he is pleased? The answer is you receive the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. And when you receive Jesus Christ, then and only then, his peace will rest upon you. I mean, so it's not peace to all undistributed. It, it must rest on those who are sons of peace. But here's the, the birth announcement of Luke, the angelic announcement. But this angelic announcement gives way thirdly and finally to the shepherd's announcement to Mary and Joseph. This is thrilling. Look back at Luke chapter 2. This is thrilling because the story, the account, the narrative is not over. It says when the angels, verse 15, 215, went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. What a picture. Here's the third response. Here's the third announcement. It's the shepherd's announcement to Mary and Joseph. I mean, think about it. Again, the grace of God that God selected these rugged, hard-working men to be the first eyewitnesses in addition to Mary and Joseph to his son that had come into the world. Do, do you see that little phrase there? I, I kind of like it at the beginning of verse 16. And they went with haste. The ASB says they came in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that? That's the first Christmas rush right there. Okay? First Christmas rush. The shepherd's announcement, listen, gave way to proclamation. In other words, here's what you see in the text. They heard the word, this is for you, and then they responded in obedience. They did not doubt. They did not hesitate that what they heard and what they saw, they acted in obedience and these shepherds had the wonderful privilege after Mary and Joseph to set their eyes on and communicate what they had seen and heard. And I trust that is your heart to believe and act promptly to the revealed Word of God. I wonder to whom you've been able to share this week. I've had opportunity. You come back tonight and I'll tell you about that opportunity that I had over the weekend. But these shepherds just responded. They heard, they saw and they acted, they went in a hurry, in haste, and came to the parents and told them the revelation. In fact, look at verse 18 there in chapter 2. It says so clearly, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I love that phrase. It says that they wondered. Literally, in the language, they were amazed is the thought. But look how Mary responded. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her 
hearts. Quietly and privately, her amazement, if you think about it, has been incubating for about nine months. She has been the recipient of the angel's message. She has been the recipient of Elizabeth's prayer. She is now the recipient of the shepherd's report. And all of that is running in her mind. As one put it, if you can fathom it, think about it. She is cradling deity. I mean, it's almost hard to grasp. She is cradling in her arms deity. She is cradling, if you will, the Lord of the universe who is her own creator. And at that moment, possibly, Jesus starts to cry. God is hungry. I mean, you don't think he was a robot, do you? I mean, it's unbelievable. That's why Grudem, when I said last week, said that how the infinite came and took on flesh and yet was fully man and fully God. She's cradling deity. So what did the shepherds do? Look, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as, I love that phrase, as it had been told them. Oh, beloved, the shepherds became worshipers. This is how it works. And the worshipers became proclaimers, and they told everybody about this child. The shepherds became worshipers, and worshipers become proclaimers. The reason people speak is they worship. And out of their worship, they proclaim. Unless you've just bought into the culture that you have found yourself living in and you're frozen over at the mouth. Now you say, well, Scott, if I would have been there, but we are there in this account. You know, it's interesting and fascinating that Luke is known to report the praise given to God at the excellency of Christ's person. Would you just take a moment with me and go on a little journey in Luke? Watch what happens according to Luke. Back up one chapter. Look at chapter 1 and verse 64. Chapter 1 and verse 64. You remember this account with the birth of John the Baptist and Zacharias. And verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke. And what did he do? He blessed God. He was blessing God. That's what happens when people behold the wondrous things of God. Look at chapter 2, if you will. In verse 28, you're aware of Simeon after he finally came and saw the child and they brought in in 27 the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. 2.28, he took him up in his arms and he, what? blessed God and said, and then there it is, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He blessed God. Would you look over at Luke chapter 5? Look there for a moment. 
Luke chapter 5. Of course, my account runs in my mind at Matt Young's funeral on Friday from the paralytic, but it's here in Luke chapter 5. Look down at verse 25. You remember immediately after, you remember he was paralyzed, immediately he rose up before him, picked up, the, picked up what he had been lying on and went home. What? glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and they were all filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things. Glorifying God, praising God. Would you look at the next chapter in Luke chapter 7? This is the account that Luke gives us. He came into this, the town of Nam, verse 11 And the disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, he called a man who had, who had, he called, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was, it says, was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Then he came and touched, uh, touched the, the air and the bears stood still. And then it says there that he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man set up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear, I think so, seized them all. And they what? They glorified God. A great prophet has risen amongst us and God has visited his people. What a picture. What a picture. If you will continue in your Bible over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, this is the response that Luke gives to those who encountered the living God. In Luke 13, in verse 13, a woman who had a disabling spirit, it says that he laid hands on her in 1313 and immediately she was made straight and she, what? Glorified God. Look over at Luke chapter 17. You see this again. You just can't miss it, can you? In Luke 17, I think you recognize this passage. It's the passage with, with the lepers that he had met, that he had healed. And one of them, verse 15, 17, 15, whom, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. And what did he do? Praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, and Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your your way. Your faith has made you well. But I love that phrase. He praised God. Look at just the next chapter at at, uh, Luke chapter 18. Chapter 18, later in the text, it tells us in verse 43 with the Blind beggars, remember that one? And in 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. And here's the response, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. I love that. They're always praising God in response to Christ. Just a couple more. Look over at Luke chapter 19. He wants you to see this. This is the triumphal entry into Luke chapter 19. And it says in 1937, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. I want to be able to walk there one day with you. 
And he's on the way down from the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would what? cry out. Listen, if you don't speak, if you don't praise, if you don't glorify, it could have been at that moment that the very rocks would have started to cry out and praise God. Look all the way to the end of Luke in Luke chapter 23. And to me, this might be the most precious one ever. It's when he was on the cross in Luke 23. You remember this in verse 46, Jesus calling out, with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he, what? Praised God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. He praised God. One more. Look all the way to the end of chapter 24, the last chapter in the book, in verse 52, after the ascension, and he blessed them in 51. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And what did they do? They worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually, and here's how he finishes his, his gospel, in the temple, what? Blessing God. They were praising God, glorifying God. And so in this account, you have Luke's announcement gives way to the angelic announcement, which gives way to the shepherd's announcement to Mary. All these people in Luke chapter 2 were responding in praise. But there's really just one more response to be made. And that's your response. I mean, this is the response of Scripture, but how will you respond? I mean, our only response is to worship is to bless him, is to praise him. I'm thinking about 2 Corinthians 9.15 where it says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Thanks be to God. The King James says, thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. The Living Bible says, thanks be to God for this gift that is too wonderful for words. The RSV says, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Listen, God's greatest gift ever is His Son. What a gift. It's too wonderful for words. And our only response this morning from the Word of God should be to praise Him, right? Should be to glorify Him. Should be to honor Him that the baby that was born is Lord of all and King of all and Lord over the universe, that all things that have come into being have come into being by him and apart from him, nothing that has come into being has come into being. He was in the beginning with the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He is, Paul says in Colossians, the very image of God, the very icon of God who is the sustainer of the universe and is Lord of all. And what that means is he is to have 
first place in your life, right? There ought to be nothing right now in your heart that is greater than Christ. Not your thoughts, not your expectation on Christmas, not your expectation on your children, not your expectation on your financial status, not your expectation on people's respect of you. Your greatest allegiance should be to make Christ first in everything. Amen? Listen, that's the only way to respond. They responded that way. How will you respond and how will I respond? Listen, these next two days will come and go real fast, won't they? You just make sure that you get on your knees and thank him for this unspeakable gift. Amen? That's our response.